And so we continue our series on Revelations. A few weeks ago, we stopped at the fifth church uh, in the seven letters of Jesus to the churches uh, for the first century uh, churches in Asia Minor, which is now uh, Turkey. Uh, do you remember what that church was? Uh, yung fifth church? Sardis. Yeah, Sardis. And do you recall how the Lord described that church? It's dead. <laughs> or it's in a, as I preach it, uh, dun sa ating uh, sermon, it was in a spiritual coma. I mean, if if we end with that, we, we end on a bad note, right? Parang, is, is this letter going to be any better? And you will notice that the middle three churches in the seven letters that we have in our series, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, uh, their conditions were on a sort of a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse as we go through uh, the condition of these churches. Uh, so Pergamum, there was just an issue of compromise. In Thyatira, there's an issue of corruption within the leadership. And in Sardis, a few weeks ago, uh, they're now on a spiritual coma. So it feels like, you know, the letters get, keep getting worse and worse and worse. So can we get any worse than that? So today, you will notice that the letter shifts a little bit. Actually, not a little bit, quite a lot. Uh, this letter, this, this uh, church, is one of the two churches in Revelations 2 and 3 where the Lord does not give any condemnation or criticism. This is one of those two churches where you don't see anything Jesus, anything bad that Jesus tells them. Only uh, one of the two. What's the other one? Do you recall? Smyrna. Only Smyrna in Philadelphia, in the letters, Jesus does not condemn them at all. You don't see any criticism, you don't see any condemnation. And so we are now on the second to the last, the letter number six in this letter. We are going to look at the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. City of brotherly love. We have a city in the U.S. named after that. And this, this church, this city, got its name, just a little bit of background, from Attalus, Attalus II. He's called Attalus Philadelphus because he was known to have shown loyalty, extreme loyalty and devotion towards his older brother. Older brother niya si Eumenes II. And when you hear those words, you know, yung city of brotherly love, um, you know, de uh, devotion towards uh, a brother, in, in our very highly sexually, uh, sexualized generation, people interpret brotherly love to, to mean homosexual affection, right? Like we, we cringe when we, when we look at uh, both men showing affection towards each other. In fact, uh, people interpret the love between David and Jonathan sexually, that their, you know, their love for one another is sexual in nature. But that should not be the case, right? That should not be the case. Uh, there's, there's space, even, especially in Christian communities, where we can express uh, brotherly or sisterly love that does not have malice, Right? And, I, and, you know, the modern pop culture reference I can think of uh, is the relationship of uh, four friends, namely Sam, Frodo, <laughs> Mary, and Pippin. Are you familiar with them? <laughs> so these are hobbits. And uh, Tolkien actually spent a lot of time explaining the culture behind the hobbits. I think a, a big chunk of the, the first book talks about their, uh, their nature to be very affectionate bunch, right? And there's actually a moving dialogue uh, by Pippin and Mary uh, when they were convincing Frodo 
that they will join in his journey. We don't see that in the, in the movie. Uh, but I will not mention that now because I, I can take the whole day <laughs> talking about the Lord of the Rings and we'll get off track. So you can just ask me after. But that's how I imagine brotherly love. The love between Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo. So this city of brotherly love, when we talk about Philadelphia, in first century a Roman world, is a relatively young city. Compared to the other cities that we have been talking about, this is a relatively young city. Even though Philadelphia is a fertile land in, in that uh, region, uh, they have you know, fertile land for grapes and agriculture, uh, this city experiences uh, a lot of earthquakes, making it a difficult place to, to sustain or to preserve long life. Meaning, if you, if you live in a place where it's guaranteed that there will be earthquakes, you would consider moving to a different place, right? You will not stay long there. So that's the kind of uh, context that we have here in, in this particular city. But let's talk about this letter. Keep in mind that the goal of these letters, more than to give the true condition of each church, which we have been learning, we see the true condition of the church, the goal, the goal is for Jesus to reveal himself more and more to these churches. I mean, that's, what, that's how we started this whole series, right? We talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ. We want to find out that the whole book of Revelation is about not just talking about uh, what will take place after all these events, and this is not just about sharing the true condition of each church, it's about Jesus revealing himself more and more and more, how it relates to each church and how it relates to, uh, to the coming uh, judgment. So this self-revelation in each of the letters is what will anchor their hope in this coming judgment. So keep that in mind because that's what we always see in all these letters. Jesus is identifying himself very uniquely in each church. And so how does Jesus reveal himself in, in this church? Well, we see both his identity and his ability. As we start in this letter, we see verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, meaning that's his identity, that he is the True One, the Holy One. He's referring to being the Messiah. That's his identity. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So for those who know the Old Testament, those who are uh, receiving this letter, uh, they know that this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. And it implies that Jesus Christ has absolute authority over his kingdom. So again, Jesus is revealing himself to Philadelphia as the true Messiah, as the one who has absolute authority. Meaning, in other words, Jesus Christ holds the key. He holds the key. And here's the, here's the big idea that I want to share with you guys. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, holds the key, we have these assurances. And let me share three things. These are the assurance for Philadelphia and for us today. Because Christ, our Lord, holds the key, Christian mission is unstoppable. Number two, Christian faithfulness is commendable. And number three, Christian preservation is guaranteed. Right? And this has been an encouragement for me, and I hope it's an encouragement for you as well. Uh, as someone who is a member of this church, or if you are attending this relatively young, relatively small relatively insignificant church. I hope this is an encouragement for you and me. Let's look at these encouragements one by one. So because Christ holds the key, it means 
the mission to share the gospel is unstoppable. Let me read verse 8 again. We always see and hear this phrase in these letters. I know your works. Behold, I have set you an open door which no one is able to shut. So Jesus is giving them an opportunity for the gospel to spread through this church. Despite the fact that they are not a strong church. Christian mission is an, is an open door for this church despite the fact that they are not a strong church. And Jesus continues, I know you have little power. What does that mean? I know you have little power. Let me quote a, a, a commentary on this. He says, it's not hard to imagine ways in which the church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was weak. The people may have come largely from lower economic and social classes, meaning may hirap sila. They probably did not have influence with the government. Walang nanalo sa kanila ng SK or barangay election. They don't have great material resources. Their numbers may have been fairly small. We don't hear or uh, see a lot of apostles, missionaries, you know, going through this area. So they're not influential even in Christian circles. But, this commentary says, their spiritual attainments contain a great power as they preach and obey the Bible and continue their witness to Christ. Christian mission is unstoppable despite the weakness of the church. And this is important because we often think, you know, the fruit of Christian mission is directly correlated to the church's ability or inability. That if the church is strong, missions is strong. That if the church is big, only, church, only big churches, only churches with big funds have the capacity to do Christian mission. That seems to be not the case in this particular church. If your church, sometimes we think, ah, if it's a small church, if it's a weak church, then probably missions is either non-existent or it will be a failure. That's not the case. Notice also, Christ did not negate the fact that they have little power. And this is important because unlike in Smyrna, when Jesus talked about their poverty, diba sinabi ni Jesus, I know, I, know you're, I know you're poor, right? I know you're poor, but you are rich. If you recall that uh, letter in Smyrna, Jesus says, you know, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but in close parenthesis, you are rich. In this letter, Jesus says, I know you have little power. That's it. It does not say, I know you have little power, but you're actually strong. It does not say that. Jesus does not negate the fact that they are weak, that they have little power. It's as if the Lord wants them to embrace their weakness. Why? Well, because as Apostle Paul experienced, there's surprising and humbling value in embracing our weakness. There's surprising and humbling value in embracing our weakness. Remember that testimony of, of Paul, and let me quote here, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this because he was experiencing thorn in the, in the flesh, and we don't know what that is. But he said to me, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then I am, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's beauty in Christian weakness because we see that despite our weakness, the mission of Christ continues. So Christ's open door for ministry continues despite the weakness, our own weakness. Second, Christian mission continues despite opposition against the church. You know, even though the door uh, of the synagogues uh, are closed for them, Christ's door for the gospel remains open. You know, Christians in Philadelphia have been excluded from Jewish, uh, Jewish synagogues. But Christ welcomes them openly. You know, this is the similar experience. Again, you will see a lot of similarities between Philadelphia and Smyrna. And this is the similar experience of Philadelphia, uh, of Smyrna, because you will also hear, uh, you will also see the same uh, reference of Jesus to the synagogues. Anong tawag ni Jesus dun sa synagogue? Synagogue of Satan. He uses the same phrase for Smyrna. Why was Jesus calling them synagogues of Satan? Was, the, was there Satan worship in, in that synagogue? Well, he calls them synagogue of Satan because they are complicit to the persecution of Christians. The, the, the Jewish synagogues are excluding Christians and they are saying uh, you know, bad things against Christians. Kumbaga, yung Jewish synagogues, they have parang legal permit to, uh, to worship as, as Jews. And they will tell the Roman government, ah, hindi namin kasama yung mga Christians, ha? Hindi, hindi sa, they're not one of us. In fact, they're, ex, they're practicing cannibalism. In fact, they, they, they drown their babies. <laughs> they... They're practicing brotherly love. They're not one of us. That's why they're, they're complicit in the persecution of Christians. And yet, despite that, that does not stop the spread of the gospel. Instead, here's what will Christ do to them. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, meaning who say that they are the true people of God, that's what it means. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that even though you have little, little strength, I love you. You know, I've said this before. Oppositions and persecutions have never stopped the spread of the gospel. And to some degree, God even used these persecutions as means to spread the gospel. We see that in the scripture. We see that in history. And I also I've mentioned this before. The fastest growing Christian communities today are coming from places of great persecution. Coming from places of great persecution. That's amazing. It's amazing. So third... Christian mission does not stop despite, number one, our weakness, number two, the oppositions that we experience, and number three, it will continue despite God's judgment against the world. You know, in this letter, the Lord warns them that there's going to be a tribulation or a trial or testing that is coming into the whole world and test those who are in the world. You know, sometimes you might think, that the spread of the gospel um, is going to stop or pause when there's tribulation happening. It's as if God is saying, okay, the spread of the gospel, hold muna kayo because I will give some judgment here. Time out lang muna kayo ha. Ito muna yung gagawin ko. 
Because we think God cannot multitask. <laughs> you know, we only think we are multitasking. This is just a little bit sidebar. For those who think you are actually multitasking, you're really not. <laughs> what you're just doing is just, you're just, you have mastered the art of dividing your attention very quickly. That's it. You have mastered the art of turning your attention, dividing your attention very quickly from one, uh, one item to another. That's what we think is multitasking. But God is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. So at His attention is not divided. This is not 50% evangelism or mission and 50% judgment. His full attention is in everything, everywhere, all at once. So God can do this. God can sovereignly uh, continue the spread of the gospel at the same time give his judgment into the world. And from our perspective naman, it means the work of evangelism does not stop because we see the tribulation and testing from God. It means, and, and let me quote another commentary, Christians are called to witness in a world that is under God's judgment. We don't say, okay, pause muna tayo because God is giving His judgment in this particular community. I've shared this story before, but let me share it again. When we started this church plant, it was our uh, first quarter of Officially, first quarter of 2020. You know what happened in 2020? Something big happened in 2020, right? There is something called a lockdown. <laughs> so when you're starting a church plant in 2020, when there's no people in Makati, how can you start a church? So it's practically impossible to start a ministry in a pandemic, right? And in the middle of that 2020, I actually thought about not continuing this church plan. I actually considered, well, this is a bad idea. <laughs> this, is, this is not strategic at all. This is a waste of time. How can you start a church when there's no gathering at all that's going to happen. Long story short, here we are now. Here we are. And for a while, I thought that experience was unique. Now, I shared a little bit in, in some gatherings. Uh, you know, a, a big gathering asked me about church planting in the pandemic, so I just shared the experience. So for a while, I thought that was a unique experience. What we experienced was different, unique. And I was like, wow, <laughs> look at me now. <laughs> but then, you know, as I've met some pastors along the way, I learned about ministries that were also started during the pandemic. And churches who have grown not reduced, who have grown during the pandemic. And there are Christians who rediscovered the biblical gospel. They have repented from the wrong teachings that they have been taught for many years. And they have committed their lives before God. And they turned to faithful churches. All of those happening in the pandemic, when we thought that God at, at least for some people think, God is judging the world. And because God is judging the world, Christian ministry is on hold. It's really not. And now we have churches collaborating more than ever. What we thought could be 
you know, impeding the move, the Christian movement is actually the means that God used for reformation. Amazing. Amazing. Christian mission is unstoppable despite the fact that God's judgment is on the world. You know, we have this verse in Matthew 18, 19, uh, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. This has been called the Great Commission, right? Some of you are familiar with that, uh, with that verse, the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In missions conferences, evangelism conferences, church planting conferences, often this will be quoted. This verse will be quoted saying, yeah, this is our call. We need to go and make disciples. What is often left out because in, in those in many conferences, in many teachings, this because this is our call, this is how you do it. This is the strategy to reach this particular place. This is the, the strategy for evangelism. And those are all good. Those are all good. But what is often left left out is what Jesus said before that commission. You know what's said before verse 19? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All these things, all the Christian mission is possible because all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so Christian mission is unstoppable despite our weakness despite opposition that we experience and despite God's judgment against the world. God causes all things to work together for good. And that's because Jesus Christ holds the key. And number two, because Jesus holds the key, Christian faithfulness is commendable. Christian faithfulness is commendable. Let me read again our text. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know, Jesus is not impressed by our liturgy, by our songs, by bright lights and big crowds, but Jesus has always commended, we see this in the Gospels, Jesus always commends people who exercise faith, despite their status. And notice in this letter, as, he, as Christ commends them of their faithfulness, Christ commends them of only one thing. In this whole letter, we only see one command, one imperative. What's that? Hold fast to what you have. You have very little power, you have very little strength, you have very little resources. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to what you have. In other words, don't quit. Don't give up. Stay in the fight. You know, I, I like this illustration from one preacher. It's like you are in 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 a in a in a boxing match against a formidable opponent. You don't expect to win, but all you can do is go the distance. Go the distance. Stay in the fight. Don't wave the white flag. Hold fast to what you have. Faithfulness is commendable. But let me just say two things, what this does not mean. Okay, number one, faithfulness does not mean perfection. Okay? Faithfulness does not mean perfection. You know, their faithfulness does not negate the fact that they are still a weak church. That we, they are weak church. 
I would say I'd like to believe that they are weak physically, financially, emotionally, and I would say even spiritually. This can imply that this church falters from time to time. They make mistakes. They sin. You know the difference? They repent and turn to God. Faithfulness does not mean perfection. And for us, that means, and, and I want us to take this to heart, Christians have no claim to superiority nor exclusivity. Only Jesus can rightly make that claim. You know, our union with Christ, when we are united with Christ, as we express that in, in, in the Lord's Supper, which we will do later on, when we experience that, it does not make us superior or elite. It only means when we, when we experience, when we practice faithfulness, it only means that we have been recipients of God's grace. And we are responding to that grace in faithfulness. Alright? So faithfulness does not mean perfection. Number two. And this is also, again, very important. Faithfulness does not always mean ministry success. Okay, let me repeat that. Faithfulness does not always mean ministry success. The way we define in our world today what success looks like. So, there's very little, in fact, I, I don't see any historical account of big names coming out of Philadelphia, unlike Smyrna, where we have historical account of Polycarp. In fact, when you go to the city of Philadelphia today in Turkey, this, this city is now called uh, Alashehir, there's not much archaeological activity happening there compared to like Ephesus or, or Philadelphia uh, or uh, Smyrna. There's not much ar archaeological activity. So there's nothing to see there except for a few remaining important symbols, cordon off, which I will mention later. So if you think about that, it appears that Church ministry in Philadelphia was not successful. Wala tayong historical account of what happened after that. Very little. It seems like our yung view natin ng success does not apply to this church. They're not very successful. Bakit? Kasi ang view natin ng ministry success in our modern world now, results. Fruits of the ministry. Big crowds, big facilities, big funds. Sabi nga nung, in, in some uh, church growth movements, like the, the way you measure the success, the success of uh, a ministry is ABC. Attendance, building, cash. <laughs> Attendance, building, cash. If you have those, you have been successful ministry-wise. I don't think Philadelphia has that. You know, we think, and antawag, by the way, you might encounter this from time to time, antawag don, pragmatism. That the results of the ministry indicate success or the value of the ministry. We think that the results of the ministry, the bigness, the ABCs, indicate God's approval. That God is approving this church simply because they have these things. And I, I actually have a, a, a theory. I'm, I'm testing this theory why God has not yet stopped false teaching, 
false teachings and false churches from growing. But that's another thing altogether. Can you imagine there are prosperity gospel preachers, they have big crowds. And if that is the case, I mean, God's approval is upon them if we think that those define ministry success. But, no, let, let me just balance it out. Because sometimes there's an overcorrection. We respond in an overcorrection to, to say, no, we despise all that is big. We despise all that is, you know, uh, the fruits of the ministry. Everything should be small. Everything should be accurate. And we view everything that's big as suspicious and unbiblical. That's also equally wrong. <laughs> that we, we are not making the smallness of a ministry a virtue. Right? It's not as if we have to make much whether we're big or small. Because God is not moved by our bigness or smallness. God does not love the small church only and not the big church. God does not love the big church only or nor and not the small. God does not love us more because we have doubled our size, we have planted X number of churches, or we have converted X number of people, or we have number of ministries. God does not love us less because we don't have those things. That is not the, the anchor by which God loves us. Whether you are big or you're small as a ministry, God delights in faithfulness. God delights in faithfulness. So those who are faithful in, in, in the faith, those who persevere in the faith, God promises, Christ promised that he will preserve. And this is our third and last point. Because Christ our Lord holds the key, Christian preservation is guaranteed. Christian preservation is guaranteed. Verse 10, because you have kept my word, about patience and patient endurance, I will keep or preserve you from the hour of tribulation that is coming on the whole world. That's the promise of Jesus. What does that mean? Does this mean immunity? Does, does this mean you have a hedge of protection over your life, meaning you will not get hurt? Does, does this mean Christians in Philadelphia and Christians now will not get hurt? Does this mean Christians will not suffer? Well, we have throughout history and even now Christians suffering. So does that make this statement false? If Christians suffer now, maybe Jesus did not keep them. Maybe Jesus did not preserve them at all. Or maybe that's not what it means. Maybe that's not what it means. Maybe Christian preservation means that Christ holds your salvation secure whatever happens. And this is what we believe as a Reformed church when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. That while Christians persevere, the reason why Christians persevere is because God, by His sovereign grace, preserves every Christian. Let me quote from Canons of Dort. Because we have this remaining sin dwelling in us, and also because of the temptation of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. Meaning, 
You know, the power of sin and Satan and uh, the, the indwelling sin and the temptation in the world, if left to our own devices, we will fall away. But God is faithful and mercifully strengthening those who believe in Him in the grace once conferred on them and power, powerfully preserving them into the end. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of election, does not take the Holy Spirit from his own completely. Even when they fall, even when you sin grievously, neither does God let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification or commit the sin which leads to death and plunge, them, plunge themselves entirely forsaken by God unto eternal ruin. Pastor, that's a lot to take in. It simply means if Christ holds the key and he preserves you, you will always have the Holy Spirit not be taken away from you. And in moments that you fall so grievously when you sin grievously, God causes you with such deeply sorrow that you will call back to Him and repent. That's what perseverance of the saints look like. And what does it look like for Christ to preserve His faithful people in Philadelphia? Let me go back to our text in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of the heaven, and my own new name. Those who are preserved, those who persevere, they will be like pillars in a temple. They have the identity, the community that is given by God in Christ Jesus. You know, I mentioned earlier that Philadelphia was often hit by earthquakes. And historical records show that they have been, indeed, there was an earthquake uh, in AD 17. This was during the time of Jesus. And often during earthquakes, the last to fall in a building, you know what? In buildings, right? You know the last to fall? Pillars. Pillars. So for these small, weak, insignificant churches to hear that they will be pillars in a temple where they are welcomed versus synagogues where they are excluded, that means a lot for them. That means a lot. That we will stand firm as pillars in the temple of God. That means a lot for them. And I mentioned that there's very little archaeological activity in happening in Alashihir, right? There's just a small portion of a historical artifact in that city. You know what's remaining in that city? Pillars. Pillars of a Byzantine church. That's what's remaining. That's just symbolic that throughout earthquakes, uh, wars got coming in and out of the place, a uh, new community being built on top of the, the, the city, you have pillars remaining. What a symbolic um, assurance of their preservation. But here's a more tangible evidence of Christ preserving his faithful servants in Philadelphia. You know, today, Christian churches in the city are small and insignificant, but they are there. They are alive. They are preserved. They are preserved so much 
that these churches in Alashihir can trace their church, congregation, and leadership all the way back to apostolic times. They have elders and bishops and pastors that they can trace all the way back to apostolic times. How amazing is that? That Christ was true to his word, to this church, that, they, that he will preserve them. You know, I, I often get this question from time to time. Pastor, when tribulations come to the world before Jesus returns, is it possible that I will fall away so much that I will lose my salvation? Kaya maraming takot sa tribulation eh. Kaya maraming takot dun sa, yan, ang tawag natin, apocalypse or sometimes zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Kaya maraming takot kasi baka hindi ko makayanan so much that I will fall away and I will lose my salvation. And, and the way I answer that is this. Well, if your security, is the, if the security of your salvation is based on your ability to hold tight to God, then there's really a big chance that you will lose your salvation. If that is the basis of the security of your salvation, is based on your how much you hold tight to God, then you will, there's a big chance you will lose your salvation. But if your salvation is based on how God holds you, then it's entirely up to Him to hold you secure. So the question is, do you trust His hold over your life? Do you trust His hold over your life? That despite the tribulation, God holds you secure. Do you trust His word? And here's the word of our Savior, John 10, 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. This is the assured preservation that Christians in Philadelphia hold on to. And I hope you hold on to this truth as well. That Christ holds you securely. And this is a promise that Christ gives to a weak, insignificant, powerless church. All they have is their faithfulness to the Lord. Because despite their little power and strength, they just believe with all their might that Jesus Christ holds the key to the door that only He has the authority to open and close. In the same uh, statement by Jesus in John chapter 10, earlier he also said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You know, Christians in Philadelphia may not find green pastures in their city. They may not even find fellowship in a Jewish synagogue. They may not even receive welcome in their own city, but they find that pasture in their great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who welcomes them. Let me just end with just one application in all these things. And I'm totally borrowing this from uh, a, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. And that's a quotation from Zechariah 4. You know, when we think we're so insignificant, when we think we only have significance, we have only power, when we have all these big things, the reminder of the Lord through Zechariah as they were building the temple, do not despise the small beginnings. The little things that you're doing, they're not, they're not, in, they're not insignificant. 
Do not despise the small things that you do, the little prayer that you have, the reading one chapter or maybe just one verse, the gathering of the, of the people on the Lord's day, your, the confession of your sin. Those are little things. Do not despise them because you will see what the Lord, the holder of the key, can do in those little things. Do not despise the day of small things. If you would oblige me, I will again share a little story from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> in the last installment, the last movie, uh, The Return of the King, we see one of the key figures in that story. His name is Aragorn. Uh, and at the, towards the end of the, the movie, the enemies vanquish, he returns to Minas Tirith in Gondor, and he accepts his role as the king of men. And in, in that uh, scene, uh, he is crowned and recognized as king of Middle-earth. Amazing. Sometimes we see the ending of the story like that, right? The vindication of, uh, of the key figure in the story. But actually, Aragorn is not the key figure in the story. Because that was not the end of the scene. As he takes his walk with his crown, with his bride, he sees his four new friends in the journey. They're obviously shorter than everyone. Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo. Of course, these hobbits bow to their newly crowned king. Of course, they bow. And Aragorn smiles as he sees them. And he says to them, My friends, you bow to no one. You bow to no one. And you know what the king does? He bends the knee. And the whole kingdom follows. They're not worshipping the hobbits, by the way. They're just recognizing the priceless contribution of these small men. So they look around. The hobbits look around. They're confused. They're surprised. Why are the people doing that? Because at that particular moment, probably for the first time in their lives, they are taller than everyone else. They are small. They have little strength. They cannot even carry a true sword because a sword is much taller than them. But the king recognizes them and calls them friend. Friends, do not despise the day of small things. The king recognizes you. The king recognizes us in our small beginnings. Let's come to the Lord in prayer.